Next, this month's special series focus on disaster medicine and preparedness. Unforeseen disasters carry unique challenges and learning opportunities. This month, we present conversations that scrutinize our plans and protocols and ask, how prepared are we? How will we react? If not managed properly, a hazardous material event can extend beyond its initial boundaries, creating untoward contamination and death. How can we prevent such events in the future? Welcome to a special segment on disaster medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. My guest today is Maureen Orr, an epidemiologist with the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, and also author of a recent article from Disaster Medicine and Public Health Preparedness, entitled Secondary Contamination of Medical Personnel, Equipment, and Facilities Resulting from Hazardous Material Events in the Years 2003 to 2006. Ms. Orr, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I'd like to start with just a definition of what secondary contamination really is. Secondary contamination is the transfer of hazardous materials from contaminated victims to off-site responders and equipment. And what kind of outcomes really result from secondary contamination that are potentially worse or equal to the initial contamination? Well, because the actual chemical exposure is less, you would expect the the harmful effects to be less. However, because secondary contamination affects the response, injures the responders, and can shut down emergency services such as the emergency department and the ambulances at a time when they're most needed, it can be more serious. What kind of instances is secondary contamination really most likely to occur? Any event where decontamination is not performed. And decon may not be performed if the incident isn't recognized as a hazmat incident, and often that'll happen, say, when an illicit methamphetamine lab victim goes to the hospital for treatment or is being rescued, or if decon isn't isn't performed purposely, sometimes when the circumstances make it difficult to do, such as really cold weather or when people are needing urgent care, like during an explosion. Are there ways that contamination is transferred beyond what may actually be obvious? There are some unique circumstances. When handling poisoning victims, such as chemical suicide, responders are often injured, especially like a coroner who's doing a post-mortem when the off-gassing chemicals come out of the body. How does a first responder evaluate whether there really is a contamination risk? He or she needs to think before they act. It's difficult for responders who want to rush in and help, but if there's suspicious circumstances or it's unknown if hazmat is involved, it's better to be safe than sorry. If the responder contaminates the ambulance or hospital, it's going to be much worse. So if you're able to determine what chemicals have been released, that will dictate what precautions you need to take. Maureen, you talk about secondary contamination occurring off-site. How does that occur? Secondary contamination happens when victims leave the scene of release without going under decontamination or if they're insufficiently decontaminated. And decontamination is meant to reduce external contamination on people and equipment and contain the contamination present and also prevent the spread of potentially dangerous substances. So if a victim retains contamination on their hair, skin, clothing, or in their body fluids, this contamination is transferred to the rescuer and their equipment and transport vehicles. Maureen, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, the study that you wrote, and it was called Secondary Contamination of Medical Personnel, Equipment, and Facilities Resulting from Hazardous Material Events. 
How did your team assess the problem of secondary contamination? Okay, well, we have a database called the Hazardous Substances Emergency Event Surveillance, HSEES, here at ATSDR. It's a database that collects data on hazardous substance releases and their associated injuries in participating states. So we use the recent data, 2003 to 2006, to do an analysis. We'd examined earlier years in previous publications, so we picked those years. There are 17 states that participated in the HESIS database during all or part of that time period, and we looked at those incidents. All right, so there, there were a lot of states that did not participate, so the numbers may have actually been higher. How many cases did you actually find? We found 15 events of secondary contamination in these 17 states during 2003 to 2006. So, yes, the total amount of incidents that would have happened in the U.S. is probably much larger. We had 17 medical personnel who were injured through exposure to contaminated victims. Twelve were emergency medical services personnel, and five were hospital personnel. There were also 47 non-medical personnel, such as employees, the public, and other types of responders who were injured during these incidents. Did anybody die? No. Where did these things occur, and, and when did they occur? Well, nine of the 17 incidents happened in nine different states. Common places for incidents to occur were gathering places like at a church hall or a residence and the roadways often there were traffic incidents. There was no pattern concerning time of day or day week or month. Seven of the incidents were a result of illegal meth activity, you know, illicit methamphetamine production or illegal dumping and seven were from human error. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to a special segment on disaster medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill, and I'm talking with Maureen Orr, who is an epidemiologist with the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. She also is an author of a recent article entitled Secondary Contamination of Medical Personnel, Equipment, and Facilities Resulting from Hazardous Material Events in the Years 2003 through 2006. Maureen, did you, in this article, get to evaluate the healthcare workers, their, their previous knowledge of there was possible secondary contamination risk going into the situation? No, we didn't, unfortunately, have that piece of information. However, we do ask whether the people had prior hazmat training. That was a question that we were able to evaluate. And what types of protocols are actually in place by EMT or other groups that, that actually have to respond to these emergencies? Well, the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, ATSTR, where I work, and also the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, both have planning guides to help emergency medical services and hospital emergency departments improve their ability to respond to hazmat incidents. I know that OSHA has a guide for not only hospital-based first receivers, but they're also working on one now that will be published shortly on emergency medical services on handling hazmat events. So these guides can be found on the ATSDR and the OSHA websites, and it's very important that hospitals anticipate that that are going to anticipate having a patient that would be contaminated um, have emergency response plans in place that they train their employees, they have personal protective equipment that's appropriate on hand, and also very important is that they participate in their local emergency planning committees and drill at least twice a year. Let's say that I want to get involved with the local emergency response team. Is there a list of questions or points that I could 
actually look at, because I'm not trained in emergency response, that might help me make a decision prior to joining the emergency team? I would say that healthcare professionals that aren't trained properly to do handle hazmat incidents can be considered skilled support personnel to be given on-the-spot instructions on hazards. OSHA defines that, that they can be given protective measures and PPE prior to treating contaminated victims, but they have to receive instructions. And important things to consider are, does the victim have chemicals on their clothing, skin, or hair? What are the substances involved? How toxic and volatile are these substances? Do they have a means of decontaminating the victims? Is there personal protective equipment available like a respirator, gloves, chemical resistant suit? Those are all important things to take into account. Because proper decontamination does not always occur, hospitals should have a designated area and part of their facility that would minimize exposure to uncontaminated employees or other patients and their equipment. So Often, a hospital will use a morgue because they have their own ventilation system for this purpose, so they definitely should have an area set aside in case victims aren't contaminated and do reach the hospital. Maureen, I was wondering if you could kind of come up with some examples that you discussed in your article, some case reports that would perhaps kind of give some actual real-life things that happened. For example, can you tell me what happened in New York in in December of 2006. Okay. In New York in 2006, there was a mace released at a community center. Between 21 and 50 people, we're not exactly sure how many, were evacuated, and the building remained closed for six days. Fourteen people, ten of them were members of the public, two were employees, and two were emergency medical technicians, experienced symptoms of respiratory irritation, dizziness, central nervous system problems. To minimize the hypothermia risk, this is when I was talking about when people are cold, they don't always do decon. None of the victims were deconned before they were transported to a hospital. And as a result of this, two ambulances were contaminated, and then the hospital had to be closed for decontamination as well. Are there any cases where the firefighters really get exposed first? Yes. In the Washington 2006 incident, firefighters were putting out a garbage truck fire, and they experienced skin irritation, dizziness, central nervous system symptoms, and shortness of breath. These are all common symptoms when you have something that's volatile. An ambulance crew responded and treated the firefighters, but no on-scene decontamination was conducted. Therefore, as the firefighters were transported to the hospital, the two EMTs that were working on them also started experiencing the same symptoms. Anything happen just in maybe some business factory workers? In Utah in 2005, we had an incident where two employees were at an aerospace facility, and they were attempting to scrape some chemical, it's called 135-trinitrobenzene, off some parts that the chemical had dried. And when they did that, the scraping caused an explosion, and it resulted in the one employee died from the explosion at the scene. And then during the transport phase, the other employee who had severe thermal burns was transported without undergoing decontamination. So the hospital had to be closed for eight hours until it could be decontaminated. Are there ever events that really involve kids? In New York in 2004, we had an incident where two children found a small glass container of hydrochloric acid, and they were playing with the container, and they received skin burns and eye irritation. They were Their parents transported them to the hospital with the containers to show the hospital, and in the process, the children 
had to be decontaminated at the hospital, treated and released, but the emergency department was contaminated with the hydrochloric acid vapors. I would imagine that there's a certain level of communication that is necessary to create a smooth response. In the article that you wrote, were these channels really established? No, it's very important for decontamination to occur in the field and for the hospital to be prepared when the patient arrives at the hospital. So effective communication from the hazmat scene to the medical facility beforehand is important. In these cases, this wasn't always happening. Also, the medical personnel have to be trained on how to handle a hazmat victim, what types of personal protective equipment they should wear. And personal protective equipment is something that has to be, respirators have to be fitted for individuals. So if you're going to be needing to use a respirator, you should have already learned, you know, had one fitted to you and learned how to properly use it and had a medical fit test prior to using it. So it's very important to have all this done ahead of time. Maureen Orr, um, thank you very much for talking with me today. Oh, thank you. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to a special segment on disaster medicine on ReachMD. To comment or listen to our full library of on-demand podcasts, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Disaster Medicine and Preparedness. For a program guide and complete list of shows, please visit us at ReachMD.com. 